but it bothers me. And I will tell you, I've read these kind of Hallmark sort of books and I feel like, you know, when I fell in love, I was attracted to my spouse. I still am. And I find it very disingenuous when this part of mortality and humanity is left out. And not that I, and I, I am so careful when I write about lines that I do not cross, things I do not say, references I do not make, body parts that are not involved and never are involved. Um, but I, I just feel like I feel very bad for people. If, I'm like, if your relationship was you didn't hug until the day you got married, like I'm sad for you. Like it's so exciting to fall in love and be attracted to someone. And that's kind of what I'm reflecting too. And I think for a lot of the women who read my books, that's why they read the book. They want to remember what it was like to fall in love. And they've actually done studies that women who read romance novels have better marriages. That's right, my children. This week, we are speaking with author Soraya Wilson, who has a new book out called Roommate. So turn the lights down low and come with me to a place of chaste sensuality. But before we get to that, of course, some housekeeping. Hey, do you follow us on Facebook? Do you follow us on Twitter? Do you follow us on Instagram? You should follow us on all three of those things, the triumvirate of power, especially because conference is coming up. General Conference is fun. We like to make it fun for you. You'll want to be there for the tie tracker, for our temple predictions. All those terrific things are happening on This Week in Mormon's social media properties. Also, our website has recently been redesigned, so go give it a give it a visit. Have some fun there. Give us some traffic. And speaking of giving, if you're not a supporter on Patreon, patreon.com slash This Week in Mormon's, where you can pledge a dollar or two a month. We're trying to get to a, a hot goal before our 500th episode, a goal imposed on us by Kurt Frankham of Leading Saints. Kurt knows, okay, folks? So get in there and give 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 some more. That would be terrific. Soraya Wilson is the author of several best-selling romance series, including End of the Line, like The Friend Zone, Just a Boyfriend, The Love Struck series, like Starstruck, Moonstruck, Awestruck, The Ugly Stepsisters series, The Ugly Stepsister Strikes Back, Promposal, The Royals of Montera, and many other standalone novels. Uh, she has never jumped out of an airplane. She's never climbed Mount Everest. She's not a former CIA operative. She has, however, been madly, passionately in love with her soulmate and is a fervent believer in happily ever afters, which is why she writes romance. Soraya Wilson, uh, welcome to This Week in Mormons. Thanks for having me. It's very nice to have you. You're uh, kind to spend some time with us. And we were just talking like this is a bit of a different area for us on our show. Normally, like a lot of what we, you know, we've interviewed this year, lots of authors of books on church history or current affairs and politics and this and that. Never have we have we uh, interviewed the author of romance novels and the author is LDS. And so I'm really looking forward to this because I think this is kind of a fun palate cleanser for me, at least personally, in terms of a lot of the stuff we've been covering. Uh, and so this is great. So I think we'll have a fun discussion about this. So in case our listeners don't know who you are, let's just start at some base level stuff. Just who are you? What's your background? Tell us about yourself. Um, my name is Soraya Wilson. I'm the oldest of nine kids and I've been married for 25 years. I've got four kids of my own. Uh, currently live in Saratoga Springs, Utah. Uh, I've been writing for, gosh, a long time, but the kind of the writing I'm doing now, the contemporary romance, I write for Montlake Romance, which is a division of Amazon Publishing. And I've been doing that for about five years. And before that, I actually wrote Book of Mormon fiction. 
So well, Book of Mormon fiction. I yeah. I know I, I think we, we'll have to move on, but I want to hear about what Book of Mormon fiction means. I, I've at most seen like comic strips that are Book of Mormon fiction. What's Tell me more. It was taking stories like um, the first one I did was I wrote about Captain Moroni's daughter. So it was a story told of the Kingmen, you know, what was going on in Zarahemla, but from her perspective. So stuff like that. That's kind of awesome. Yeah, that's, that's it's fun. So were these were these full blown novels? Were they more like short stories? Or they were full blown novels. They're published by uh, Covenant. You uh-huh. know, runs with Siegel Bookstores. Yeah, yeah. That was a long time ago. My daughter, I think my second book, she was had just been born and she's 13 now. So it's been a while. That's pretty awesome though. Yeah. I, I didn't I didn't even know that about your background. So so therefore you've already legitimized yourself a little bit more in that you did. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> you did now I'm official. True, true Latter-day Saint work. Um, I'm gonna have to look some of these ones up. That's awesome. I guess it, I guess it's not that weird because I mean you know, Lund wrote the work in the glory. There's all, there's fictionalized books all over the place, like uh, about the pioneer era. So why not have fictionalized books about the Book of Mormon era? That's and I don't rad. I don't know that every Latter Day Saint is comfortable with it. You know, some people felt like it wasn't you like know, a sacrilege or yeah, what? like or priestcraft or something. I don't know. But what I found that I thought was great was I had mothers reaching out to me and saying my child had never understood this part of the scriptures and you made it come alive for them. And they understand it now and want to read more. And so I thought that was very cool. That is awesome. What, what do you say to people who, who did say it's inappropriate or sacrilege? I'm assuming is that because what? Because you're adding to scripture or you're making up scripture making in a up, way? I don't know. I didn't really say anything. That's one of the things you learn as an author is it's not even worth responding to. It's not worth getting in a fight over. You know, People are going to think what they think and you just kind of nod your head and move on. That is advice I should take for many of my Facebook interactions of late. Yes. So I, I, I commend you <laughs> for, your, for your discipline in that regard. So you did this for a long time. What made you pivot into, as you called it, contemporary romance novels? What was what precipitated that? Well, there's not a lot of money in uh, LDS fiction. You're kidding. I'm not. Jerry Do doesn't pay out, huh? Yeah. Right. So, yeah. well, so it was kind of frustrating to work that hard and, you know, not really see a lot of recompense. I mean, I was glad to be helping people and doing what I was doing, but I had secondary infertility and couldn't have kids and all of a sudden different treatments. And I had my daughter and then I got pregnant with my son, like very soon after that. So I had these two babies and there was just, there was no time for anything. And as they got a little bit older, I'm like, you know, I really miss writing. I want to get back into that. And the problem is I wanted to be national. I wanted to be published with New York, but it was like a catch 22 where you have to have an agent to get published, but you can't have an agent until you've been published. You know, like it just is really Uh difficult to get an agent and get started out. So at the time when I was kind of going through this, all of a sudden there's this thing called indie publishing where anybody can write anything and upload it to sites like Amazon. And I was so excited. It's like the Wikipedia of publishing. Sorry. Right. Like it was so exciting to me. Like I, all that's all I wanted to talk about for two weeks. And I had all these ideas and I'm like, wow, I can write whatever I want and not what an editor tells me I have to write or, you know. And so the problem is, even if you write a good book, there's like 10 million books on Amazon. You know, how do you get found? How do people find your book? Um, so it was really frustrating and difficult. And I thought, you know what I need to do is I need to be published with Amazon. That's, you know, like, because they had their own publishing houses that's independent of independent publishing, more traditional, but you have to have an agent. And so what ended up happening was they had a program called Kindle Scout that came out and it was kind of like uh, American Idol, but for books. So you put up like the first chapter of your book 
and your cover and people could nominate your book and say, hey, I think this looks like a good book. And so the book I wrote for that was called Royal Date. It's about a girl who goes to a fictional country in Europe and meets a prince. And I wrote it in about a month. And the day I finished, they announced this program. And I'm so glad I'm on an LDS podcast because I can say this. Seriously, it was like the spirit whispered to me, you're going to win. Like it was that wow. clear cut to me. Like I was going to enter and I belonged to a group of LDS indie authors at the time. And everybody was just outraged. Like this program is bad for authors and oh, it's so terrible. You're giving away your rights. And I saw it and all I saw was possibility. And I knew I was going to win. So I entered and I did win. And I was one of the first 10 winners. And the woman who ran the program said, why'd you enter? And I said, well, I would love to be with Montlake Romance. You know, that's their, their romance house. And yeah, yeah. she said, well, you know, that's very cool. Thanks for letting me know. Next thing I know, I'm getting a phone call from the woman who I now know is the lead editor for Montlake. I didn't know this at the time. So I thought it was just sort of a foot in the door, nice to meet you kind of meeting. And I thought it was just, I thought it was a very nice gesture. But at the end of the phone call, she goes, okay, we're going to offer you a two book contract. Now, anybody who is in publishing will tell you how implausible this story is. This doesn't happen. And very much felt like the Lord opening doors for me. Um, and I, I got that contract and I have been with them ever since. It's been five years. I've published multiple books with them. I had a book called um, Royal Design, which is a new kind of technology called Kindle in Motion. And it's where as you're reading the story, there's moving gifts inside the story. Like you're seeing a movie scene being acted out that's from the story. And I was one of the very first authors to help um, oh, wow. start that program. But yeah, I've had a lot of really amazing experiences. And um, I kind of feel like contemporary romance is my voice. And it's what sounds the most like me. And so it's very easy to write in that regard. It's much harder to write historical or fantasy fiction for, for me, not for yeah, anybody else. Yeah. But so that's kind of why I, I went over that direction. And that's my very long answer to your question. Well, that no, long answers are good because then people hear less from me. And that's the reason why you were here. Uh, so, and are all the books exclusively Kindle releases? Are they ever actually printed for realsies? Or is They're this printed for realsies. Era? You know, okay. you can go online and I asked and that and then I've read, I actually read a printed for realsies one. Yeah. So I, that was a stupid question for me to ask. Okay. Well, no, I, I am with Amazon. So I am Amazon exclusive. So I don't have, you can't get the, like an e-version on Barnes and Noble. You can get the pub, the published version, but not like an electronic book now. That's interesting. That's it. This, this is a whole fascinating world to me. I've never, the most I've done is I've submitted like academic papers that have not been published. So when it comes to the world of, I, I remember once a long time ago, when I was younger, I sat down to write a book, you know, as, as many do. And I got through like a cover, like the first page and then I just got distracted or bored. Though in my defense, I called the book Interstellar and this was years before uh, Christopher Nolan made that amazing movie. So I feel like somehow I was, you know, with him and I still you haven't seen your chance. I guess so. I guess so. It's not, I don't think it was my calling though, Soraya. I'm okay with it. My calling was to host a niche podcast focused on Latter-day Saint news. This You talk about where the money is. This is where the money is. <laughs> I'm sure you're, yeah. <laughs> um, so you sort of hinted at this, and I want to I ask this clearly, and this is very respectfully. I enjoyed the book, by the way. Ever, sorry, everybody. The book is Roommate, which I didn't say. We'll talk more about the book in a bit. Okay. So the, the book is an enjoyable read. I thought it was fun. Like It was a good, fun book. It was a romance book. And what I found interesting about it was when I received it, I guess in my mind, I was picturing something that was a romance novel sort of catering to Latter-day Saint audiences, which I think plenty of Latter-day Saints could read it and be fine with it and be and be perfectly entertained. But at the same time, I guess I would call it like, 
I don't even know if I'd call it hard PG if we were to give it a movie rating. Yeah. But you know, it has some content that's just just a shade beyond something like the Hallmark Channel. It's not Daniel Steele by any means or anything no. like that. But you know, I mean, like the characters just socially drink as characters do. They even talk about getting hammered. There, there's one scene where someone just sees someone getting out of the shower. It's innocent enough, but um, but things like that happen. And so that intrigued me because I said, okay, so this is this is not a book that I think, for example, Deseret Book would pick up, no. right? Um, so when I was reading, I was thinking, but it's also not, like I said, it's not Danielle Steele. It's not so steamy that, you know, you're going to have, uh, that audience going for it. So like, who is your audience here? Like, who is this for when the way you write your books? I think it's in a very interesting middle space. I am in a really weird middle, middle space that I get, you know, like reviews on Amazon where like, this is the most juvenile, you know, because there is nothing steamy in it. And so those people feel like they're getting ripped off, you know, and then I get, you know, Latter-day Saints coming in and leaving reviews and saying, Oh my gosh, the immorality in the smut, you know? So I am in this really kind of weird position where there's not a lot of us. I mean, there are actually, there are a lot of us authors that you just probably haven't heard of because you don't read in the genre. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's an Amazon is classified as clean and wholesome, which means essentially that there is no sex on the page or there is closed door, like um, stuff happens, but you don't see any of it. Um, and that's kind of where I'm at. Like, you know, I'm not trying to appeal solely to an LDS audience. My characters are not LDS. You know, that I I would probably give them good, I would say mostly Christian values, you know, as as people, but they're regular people. You know, I'm trying to write, and I, what I feel like I get to do is I get to kind of impose some of my own morality and some of my own belief systems into these characters, which then gets put out kind of into the world. Um, I am very comfortable with what I write. You know, I, I, there are LDS authors, very famous LDS authors who write so much more steamier than me, like exponentially more so. And they're yeah. perfectly comfortable with it as well. And I, I kind of feel like I, I went out to lunch once with this LDS author who wrote much steamier scenes. And I kind of said, how do you feel about that? Like, how do you get away with that? And she goes, you know what? It's between me and my God and everybody else can shut up about it. And that's kind of how I feel about it. You know, me and Jesus, we're good with this. You know, he has no problem with what I'm doing. I don't feel uncomfortable. I don't feel like I crossed a line or done anything wrong or bad. And that's the only relationship in this situation that matters to me. Um, so I, I, I do think there's kind of this resurgence that a lot of romances used to be like this, where there's kind of a little bit of innuendo. There's some hinting at things. Um, there's flirting and banter. And but then it, it, as time went on, you know, the books got steamier and steamier. And I kind of feel like what I'm writing is kind of having a resurgence that it's coming back to the forefront. And there are so many LDS authors who are writing exactly the way that I do. So, and it, you can find anything you want in romance. That's the great thing about it. You can also find people who are writing these Hallmark romances where the characters might as well be LDS, you know, that they're hugging on the last page and that's the end of the romance novel. And that's great. You know, that's, <laughs> that's what you want to write. That's what, I was, that's what I was expecting too. As I started reading it, my wife was like, she's like, they're going to kiss in like the last chapter, honey. Nope. Like that's what happened. <laughs> and it didn't, and it, it, no, just, it, but it bothers me. And I will tell you, I've read these kind of Hallmark sort of books. And I feel like, you know, when I fell in love, I was attracted to my spouse. I still am. And I find it very disingenuous when this part of mortality and humanity is left out. And not that I, and I, I am so careful when I write about lines that I do not cross, things I do not say, references I do not make, body parts that are not involved and never are involved. Um, but I, I just feel like I feel very bad for people. If, I'm like, if your relationship was you didn't hug until the day you got married, like I'm sad for you. 
Like it's so <laughs> exciting to fall in love and be attracted yeah. to someone. And that's yeah. kind of what I'm reflecting too. And I think for a lot of the women who read my books, that's why they read the book. They want to remember what it was like to fall in love. And they've actually done studies that women who read romance novels have better marriages because they feel more affection for their spouse and are more forgiving of things, I think. And, you know, that, that they get this out of the book, they get to remember and it makes them remember when they fell in love with their spouse. So I don't know. I feel like I'm doing good stuff here, but when you say like that study with romance novels, I would love to read that. Does that, does that also draw a line similar to what you were saying? Like in terms of the, the level of the content. Cause I also feel like, I think it was Elder Holland like years ago, uh, gave a talk where he sort of hinted at the fact that the, the harder core end of, you know, romance novels were, he was essentially saying there were an issue amongst the women in the church and that they were, you know, basically pornographic in nature. So does that, does that study suggest a line where it's more wholesome, where it's more appreciating one spouse or is it just you romance? Know, I don't know. I think it might just be romance novels in general. I don't know if there was a line between the different types that they consume, um, but I'm not sure I'd have to go back and look at it. It's been a long time since I looked at it. Yeah. That's super interesting. Do you ever, um, do you get much, have you had like any in-person blowback from Latter-day Saints who think, even though I genuinely think what you are writing is like, it's pretty much wholesome. It's just regular people who are being pretty good. Yeah, out there. they're so tame. Um, but are there people, and you've said this online, but have you had people like actually talk to you and or suggest perhaps that what you're doing as innocent as yours really is, is not like furthering the mission of the church and of teaching the appropriate values that we could, like essentially, are you, are you missing an opportunity perhaps to educate or to influence the women and the young women of our church and of our faith to expect a certain thing by, by elevating the, the sauciness, we'll say ever so slightly. Does that make sense? Has anyone ever like expressed like disappointment to you in that regard? I don't think they not should. I'm, in I'm with you in that regard, but not in person. Have I had lots of things online anonymously? Oh yes. Of you course, know. of course. But um no, you haven't met me, so you don't know, but I am <laughs> I'm a fairly intimidating person and people don't tend to mess with me very much because I will come for you and you know <laughs> I I very much would stand up for myself. So I think people when you meet me, you kind of get that. But um yeah, I, I've never had anybody say it to me in person. And I, I kind of feel like if someone did, I, I would be like, you need to mind your own business. You take care of your salvation and I'll take care of mine. And I'm able to do things like that book I mentioned, The Kindle in Motion. The character talks about serving others. And she has this quote that's up on her fridge. And it's a quote from President Hinckley. Now, an LDS person reading that's going to know it's from him, but nobody else would, right? So I feel like I am being able to influence the world and bring joy to people and do good things in a, in a way that maybe they're not expecting and that they are getting truths. And I am doing that, but I'm also entertaining. And I feel like sometimes when we think about Jesus and his parables and things that yes, he was teaching really important lessons, but sometimes I feel like the most important thing that he was doing was he was entertaining them because when you are entertained in hearing gospel truths, you are going to remember them and you are going to keep them and retain them. I mean, I could ask you about any parable and you could recount it for me because he told it in such a way that you'd remember. And I think storytelling for that reason is so important and that we can share these values and have these things come out into the world that people don't even know they're being fed, you know, and they're just getting it. Um, so I don't know. I, I think it's probably what I would say to someone if they, they wanted to come at me. 
Yeah. Do, do you feel like your faith, um, especially since you switch genres, do you feel like your faith informs your work or, or how does it Absolutely. factor in? I mean, I, I am doing this very much because I felt like the Lord wanted me to, that my oldest son was diagnosed with autism when he was three. And here we were, I was pregnant. My husband and I were, you know, had only been married for a few years, very poor. And so I went to seek help and they're like, well, there's a special program called Applied Behavioral Analysis, it's ABA. And you can do that, but it's going to cost you $10,000. I mean, and it might as well has been 10 million. You know, how would we ever come up with $10,000? And I was just despairing and I prayed about it. And I said, what do we do? How do I get this money? And the answer came back very clear, write a book. And I was like, well, that's, I'm not doing that. You know, I'm not going to write a book. And and by that point, had you written, had you written any I've book written nothing, nothing. Okay. I had no intentions. I, I'm not one of those people who went to school and said, I'm going to be a writer someday. That was never my dream. That was never, you know, what I was looking for. And so it was very odd that that was the advice the Lord gave me because it wasn't even in my, you know, my head at all. And so one of the things we did to raise money for him was we did a, my ward came together and donated items to have like a multifamily garage sale. And we held it in the church parking lot. And so I sent out press releases to the local paper. We lived in Ohio at this point and asking, you know, tell people about this. And one of the reporters contacted me and said, can I come over and interview and take pictures? And I said, of course. And the woman came to the house and when she came in, she said, I just have to ask you, are you a writer? And I kind of stopped and I said, what would make you say that? She's like, your press release was just so well written. I, I just assumed that you were a writer. And I kind of looked up to heaven and I said, okay, message received. Like I got it, you know, like he was making sure. Um, and funnily enough, the money for that stuff did not come from the books that I wrote. That was back when I wrote the book of Mormon fiction and that money didn't come from there, but I still felt like this is what the Lord wanted me to do. And I've seen so many blessings in my life and that son has gone on by the time he was eight, he was registering as normal on tests, you know, not on the autism spectrum. He's now married. I mean, when he was in high school, he was an Eagle Scout and a varsity football player and an honor student. He is this incredible man. Um, and I felt like some of that, the blessings from the Lord in, in making him better was my obedience and that this is what I was supposed to be doing. And he made sure that I knew it. So I very much feel like my faith informs what I do. Well, no one's going to top that. That was a great answer. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. That's amazing how much that that's affected your life in such a way. That's that's powerful. Uh, so, when raising your family um, and doing all this at the same time, that's that's a challenge. For oh you, yeah, right. I mean, you're a working Latter Day Saint mom, so I'm really curious. Like, what's your process, or how do you find time to write while balancing life's demands? Like, what's your flow like? How do you how do you get all these things done? I am actually in a much better position now, I think, because you know my youngest is 11. I don't need to be watching them every second of every day. Um, and like I said, when my two youngest were babies, I got nothing done. I got no writing done because they took all of my time and all of my energy and all of my creativity. There was nothing left at the end of the day. And I know there's women who can do it. And I am so impressed because I, I do have friends who, you know, maybe in their late twenties, early thirties who are got small children and they managed to do it. And some of them, like I have a friend who belongs to what they call a 5am club. She gets up at 5am to write. Um, and for me now, it's just not, it's just not an issue. You know, that it's my schedule. I, I have the whole day. My kids are all in school full time. Um, and even when they're home in the summer, they can watch themselves. They can entertain themselves. Mom doesn't need to be hovering over them every minute. So I think that's part of the reasons why I started a little bit later in life and got kind of where I'm at because, or things like I go to a lot of writers conferences and book signings and stuff all over the country. 
And um, that wasn't possible when my, my, my oldest kids were little, there was just would have been no way, but now I can do it easily. So one thing I'm curious about with the way you write in this genre in particular, um, how do you like, how much, where's your balance between trying to say, challenge your readers versus just kind of giving them what they want? Here's where I'm at with that. Um, when I was in high school, I had a sister who was special needs and she died when I was 17. I'm sorry. And Oh, thank you. Um, and it was obviously devastating for everybody in the family, you know, especially my mother. And she, at the time I remember, she just was always watching movies and reading books. And I asked her, why do you do this? And she said, because if I'm watching a movie for two hours, I get to forget the crushing pain that I feel. Mm-hmm. And that has probably informed my writing more than anything else. I am not trying to challenge anybody. I'm not trying to write these really in-depth character things. I will freely admit that what I'm writing is cotton candy, bubblegum, lollipop type of fiction. And what I'm hoping is that for a couple of hours, the people who read my books get to forget their problems. Their lives get to be a little bit easier and things are not quite so hard. And that's kind of what I feel like I was called to do, that I get to ease other people's burdens. And I take that very seriously. And it's a very important thing to me. Um, and I know different writers have different motivations and they're really trying to explore themes and you know, characterization and everything else. Mine is, I want you to sit down and know that you are going to have a good time and that you were going to enjoy yourself. And when you walk away, you're going to feel happy. And everything's going to turn out just the way it's supposed to, because life is so hard, especially now. You know, there are so many hardships and so many things that are awful and terrible. And I can make it super a little bit. You don't have to deal with any of that. That's what I'm here for. If you want, you want to know something funny. Um, so when I started reading the book, it's admittedly, I was kind of like, I'm not the target demographic here. Right. Like, I, I don't, I, I don't expect to be, and that's fine. So as I started reading the book, I was kind of like, all right, this is going to be fun. And I, and I had actually just pulled off of doing a, uh, a couple of months. It was right around a couple of months ago. We had an author on who, talk, who wrote a whole novel, not a novel, a, a historical account about James Strang, who was one of the actors after in the Succession Crisis after Joseph Smith died, and about like his followers who took him with the church. So I was like mm-hmm. way in that mindset. So as I picked it, so I put that book down, I finished it, went to this one. And it took me a while to change gears. But as I got into it, my wife was cracking up because there was one night she was like, what are you doing? Like she found me in the other room. We have a young baby and I was just in another room not to disturb anybody. And I'm just sitting there like reading Room Made by myself late at night because <laughs> uh, you find yourself all of a sudden you you realize you are sucked in and you have to see how it ends and you're yeah. riveted. And like, and like you said, it's, it's, uh, it's just thoroughly enjoyable. And that's why fiction I think is so powerful because um, – you know, it's great. It can take you to a different place. And like you said, not everything has to be rich in symbolism. It can just be a nice story about good people and hopefully the good uh, results of their actions, even if they're, you know, there's obviously going to be some kind of a conflict. There has to be in all of these stories, but um, you've written a lot of novels, Mm -hmm. a a number of them. And I I believe, you know, there's the friend zone, just a boyfriend. There's, I'm assuming this is a, forgive me for not knowing everything. Uh, but a series, the sort of hashtag struck series, love, you got starstruck, moonstruck, awestruck. Yeah. Um, the ugly stepsister, which strikes back. And, and also one of my other favorite titles, you have promposal, which is kind of yeah. like roommate in the world of portmanteaus that are yeah. funny. I like that. Um, you've written a lot of books. Which one of your books is your favorite? And this might be the same answer, but which one would you love to see turned into a feature film? 
Okay. If you can only choose one of each. Uh, to date, my favorite book has been, there's a time travel one. And it's called Once Upon a Time Travel. Oh. It's sort of Bridget Jones meets Jane Austen. So it's my modern contemporary heroine going back to Jane Austen time period. I love that book. I had this, because, you know, I started out writing historical fiction. So that kind mm-hmm. of was where I saw my career going. And But I had this kind of fun contemporary voice. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be fun to combine them? And then I could write a historical series based on the Regency. But I thought about this book for a long time. And, you know, one of the things that publishers do not like is combining genres. So it was a time travel book. It was a chick lit book. It was a romance. It was paranormal. You know, and it was all these different things. And I thought no one's going to buy this. And so I didn't write it because there was no, I thought there's no audience or someone's going to buy it. And it took me about 10 years to finally, I had a publisher who was like, yeah, I'm interested in that. And I wrote it. And I, because I had thought about it for so long and I, I had this stack of, you know, yellow legal pads full of notes. And I think because it had taken so long to get to that point, it was just a joy to write. It was just, I have never felt as much joy writing an ending of a book as I did that one because it just like flowed and it's a writer will understand this. There's times where I don't remember who said it. They said, writing is easy. You sit in front of your typewriter and cut your wrists and bleed all over the keyboard and writing very often feels that way. But sometimes it's almost like you're just mainlining the spirit or something. And like, it's just coming through you. And like, you don't even know how you wrote what you wrote. And that's what writing that book was like. So I really love that one. Um, But I would say the book that I hope would be made into a movie is the one I've got coming out next April. It's called The Seat Filler. And it was inspired this past January. I went to the SAG After Awards and I got to meet Adam Driver. He's the guy who plays Kylo Ren in Star Wars. Oh, he's he's a beautiful hulk of a man. Yeah, he's okay. So I'm at this award and I am meeting like childhood heroes. And I am like literally saying that. Like Henry yeah. Winkler's there. And my mom's like, uh-huh. when I was a baby, before I could even talk, she was, you would sit on the floor with your thumbs up and go, hey, because I loved the Fonz. So he comes over and signs an autograph and he tells my daughter she's beautiful. And, you know, and he asks if I'm her sister. And it's such a charming flirt. But like so overwhelming to me to meet these people that I, Carrie Elwes from Princess Bride, you know, mm-hmm. how much do you love him? So Helena Bonham Carter comes over and like asks my name to sign my autograph. But I was fine. It was like, these were these great experiences. I was having so much fun. I was talking to and joking with the celebrities. Adam Driver comes over and it was like my brain stopped functioning. And this man has social anxiety. He does not like making small talk. And I could not speak. And I am not like that, you know, and I was fine with everyone else. He's just overwhelming in person. And as he walked away, I'm like, this is a book. This is a book. You know, this girl meets her favorite celebrity and can't even talk. And that's how the seat filler came to be. And so my editor actually just sent me an email today where she said, I really hope this gets turned into a major motion picture because it needs to be. So that's the one I'd pick for getting turned into a movie. And we want Adam Driver to star in it. So. And now when you call it the seat filler, you were just, you were just at the, uh, the SAG after awards, were you actually being a seat filler at the award show? No, at that one, they don't do seat fillers. Um, okay. I was actually like, there's bleachers set up on the red carpet and I was right yeah. in the front row. And so I was able to meet a lot of people. They do seat fillers for like the Academy Awards, right. um, the Emmys, things like that. But in this case, I don't want you to spoil the book, of course, but is this essentially about a seat filler who yes. has similar experiences to do that? That, yes. <laughs> that, that actually, She's is, sitting next to a very Adam Driver-esque type hero. Oh my gosh. And they're going to fall in love. They are going to fall in love. Can you believe it? Okay. I have to read this one. I'm psyched. I'm in. You've sold me. You, you've, uh, you've sold me, Sarai. This is excellent. 
Well, that's fun. I was going to ask you too. I don't know how it is with Amazon, but if if uh, you know if the movie rights for Room Maid are up for grabs, I'd be happy to have them and you know option them. But maybe maybe you don't control that, and that would be. Um, I we can get asked. I actually do have a, a production company that's trying to is trying to sell it. Oh, um, so you know, but it's one of those things. that's very difficult. Hollywood, like my agent said, she goes, it just takes one stiff breeze to have a deal fall apart. So. You know, you hope, but I mean, there are people who are so famous, like New York Times bestsellers, like everybody knows their name and still don't have a movie. Yeah. You know, it, it, sometimes it takes decades for stuff to come out. So like Beverly Jenkins is a huge pioneer in the romance industry. She's just a phenomenal author. And one of her book series is finally being turned into a TV show for Netflix. I mean, she, she's been writing since like the seventies. Yeah. So, I mean, well, stuff, a lot of stuff stays in development hell for a really long time. Yes. And it just can't get out. So yep. that's fun. It's really I like hard. to pretend I pretend I know the lingo because I grew up in LA. So, you know, like I, I really act like I know what I'm talking about. I believe yeah. you're a SoCal native as well, aren't you? Yeah, I grew up in uh, Marino Valley. It's near Riverside. Yeah, 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 Empire. for sure. Yeah. So I actually, I actually grew up in Orange County, if you know where your Belinda yep. and Brea are. That's I do. where I grew up. So very cool. I don't have to say LA to you. You actually know the real I do. land. I'm from Orange County. All right. So let's talk about roommate. Um the fun book itself. Uh, and obviously we don't want to spoil anything. We want to encourage everyone to go out and read the book for yourselves. It's, it's good times. So first thing with room made, uh, and everyone to be clear, that's room made. Okay. As in, as in a, a cleaning worker. Okay. A room made. All right. So first thing with room made, what distinguishes it from a crowded field of contemporary romance novels? How does this one differ from either what you've done or what else is available out there from other authors? Well, I would hope it's actually the premise of it is based on a, a Time magazine article that came out like 15 years ago, um, where there was this kind of this phenomenon that was happening where kind of young single guys who, you know, they owned a house or an apartment with several rooms were asking friends and female friends mostly to come live in their spare bedroom and clean up for them. And they would get free room and board because they were, you know, they're paying the mortgage anyways. And this was a way to kind of, I guess, kill two birds with one stone. So Time Magazine did this whole thing about it. And I remember at the time reading going, huh, that's a story. So I'm hoping that it's kind of a unique hook. It's a little bit different than what else is out there that, you know, and this, the premise, as you know, is this girl who's a former heiress who raised in the lap of luxury and she desperately needs a place to live. And she gets this offer and she's like, yep, I'm in, even though she has never cleaned a day in her life and she has to take care of his dog and she's never taken care of a dog. So um, I would hope the setup would be, and, you know, and I guess you could argue about romance is it is the journey. You know where it's going to end. And that's one of the great things about romance is that we know what's going to happen in the end. Like you said, they're going to fall in love. We know. But, that you know, that the journey is enjoyable and that, you know, that it's fun and it's flirty. It's, it's got good banter, I hope, that you would think people would think so. I mean, I think so. But uh, it sounds kind of prideful. But um, <laughs> you're allowed to be prideful. You're selling. You're selling. It's okay. Be um, but, yeah, that it's. But it would be something that and something that you can read and then you can hand to your mom and you can hand to your teenager and not worry, you know, about content. I had no idea this was a real thing. I was going to ask you like if this was based on anyone you knew in real life or how you got the idea. I had no idea there was a real now. Now the Time Magazine article did it suggest that any of these people also fell in love or was that where you want? That's where I yeah. I'm always looking around and sometimes I even had a friend. I have my friend Becky Monson who I had this idea and she took it too because we read the same news source. You know, was, there was one where um, this guy was going to get married, had his honeymoon planned out. The wedding gets called off, but he has these non-refundable plane tickets. So he puts out this article online, like, I'm looking for somebody who has the same name as my fiance. 
come on this world trip with me. And I remember th- I saw that and I'm like, oh, that's a story. And my friend Becky Monson wrote it. It's called Just a Just a Name. Um, because, you know, you just hear these things and your romance brain works and you're like, huh, yeah. that's a story. So, so funny. So uh, the setting of the story is in Houston. Yeah, I was curious. I, I'd not. I don't pick up many books at all and expect anything to take place in Houston, other than you know ship ship canals and really bad weather. So why well, Houston? Do you do you have experience with Houston? Is this a I Houston don't. in your mind, or you is know, this? It's a Houston you- I made up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one of the reasons I chose it was Amazon has this phenomenal program for its authors where you can log in and you can see how many books you sold that day and which books you know are selling and that kind of stuff. But they have uh, in the program, there is a place you can go and you can see where your books sell the most. And I'm a big seller out in Texas. In oh, so this is just like, an S- this, is a, this is an SEO ploy. I see. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought, I just thought it'd be fun to appeal to those readers. I thought I've got a lot of readers out there. That's right. You know, I mean, it could have taken place anywhere, I guess, but I thought. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. Yeah, you're not really like delving into place names. Right. I'm very anything. careful with that because people start to get like, well, that's not what that place is like at all. So yeah, yeah everything is made up for that reason. That's so funny. Yeah, because as I read it, I said like, it's, it's just so curious to talk about, you know, the hot cosmopolitan old money life in, you know, Houston, yeah. which I'm sure exists, yeah. but I get, but uh, go figure. Um, we talked about, about uh, film adaptations. If there were to be an adaptation of Room Made, who do you see starring in the Hollywood adaptation? Of oh the gosh, film. that's hard. who would play Madison and who would play Tyler and who would play Oksana? I mean, come on. You know, <laughs> this is something I would have to go like I've never thought about it, and like it would be so important to me to have the right answers for you that like I couldn't just say, oh, have Florence Pugh be Oksana, you know, which I think she did a really good job because she does the Russian accent already in the new Scarlet, um, Scarlet Widow. Is that right? Black Widow. Black, Black Widow. Widow. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thinking of yeah. Scarlet Witch. But the new Black Widow movie that's coming out, Florence Pugh plays her sister and she does a great Russian accent. So she could do it. But like, it would be so important to me to get this right. Like I, other authors do this. Like here's the actors I see doing this. I can't do that. Like it's so dumb. But I'm like it has to be perfect. If it wasn't perfect, it would be upsetting to me. So I, I can I fill it in for you. The, 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 the female is supposed to be Rachel Lee Cook and the male lead is supposed to be Freddie Prince Jr. Those are always the answers to write. Always the answer. Except that, that, they're about twenty years too old. But other than that, yeah. I, well, I mean, yeah. I, I, if you have not seen, I don't know if you saw the uh, new Rachel Lee Cook movie that dropped on Netflix called Love. I did. Guaranteed. I loved it. Yes. Watched so it last cute. week. How was that? Uh, how is Damon Wayans Jr. not the star of everything? I don't know. Uh, very charming. So much chemistry. So much charm. It was phenomenal. It was kind of a coup to get him too. I think. I think so. Not, not, not to denigrate the world of Netflix romance movies, but he's a he's a decent name, you know. And a lot of the time, it's you don't get like hardcore A-listers to do movies like that. Yeah. I thought it was, uh, it was thoroughly enjoyable. Okay. So then my follow-up question, maybe you won't answer. If you had to make a Mormon only adaptation, which Mormon actors would be in the film? I'm so unfamiliar. Like I think the only Mormon actors I know is like Kirby Hayborn. And (laughs) I'm friends with Kelsey Edwards. She did a video for me from one of my books, Moonstruck. Uh Um, We actually, I hired a production company down in Provo. And uh, they hired her to be the star in my video. And she did a great job. So I know her. So she's who I would pick. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, when you're doing a book like this, uh, without any spoilers, of course, were there was there anything significant that you edited out of the book? Anything, any, anything major that you totally changed course on? Or is a lot of the 
tip the general flow of the book already in your head and you're just, and you're just kind of plugging in the the scenes and the details or did you actually have to change anything drastic i am very different from other authors in this regard and i don't usually talk about it a whole lot because it makes other authors mad but like i remember going to my first writers conferences and they're like you have to write four drafts and if you don't write four drafts of your novel then your novel's garbage pretty much what i write in the first draft and what i send to my editor is what gets published. It just kind of comes out of my head and goes on page. And, you know, obviously we clean it up and obviously Hmm. I don't delete scenes. Stuff doesn't get thrown out. Um, I put in what belongs and, you know, I'm like, it's like that happy Gilmore when you get to the hole in one, he's like, why don't we do that every time? That's kind of why I'm like, just write it right the first time. Like, why do you have to do it four times? But everybody has their own process and I don't want to denigrate anybody else's process. And if it takes you four drafts till you find the story, like more power to you. But I, I pretty much know. I don't know. It's hard to explain. Um, I, I think about the story a lot. I don't really know where it's going. I'm what they call a pantser versus a plotter. A plotter, and I have seen these people, what they do. We're talking like boards filled with post-it notes of exactly what's going to happen in each chapter. Like that would kill the story for me. I'm kind of like, as I'm going along, I'm, dialogue will occur to me. Like I have one of those notepads in my shower to write things down. For some reason, it comes in the shower like so easily. Um, but I... I have these ideas and I, I incorporate them into the story. And um, it's a lot of work. I mean, like I, I work pretty hard when I'm writing a book, but it really is as I'm going along, I just write it. And then that's just what the story is. So. So how long does a, how long does a book typically take you to write then? I can tell you exactly how long it takes me to write because I'm okay. a procrastinator <laughs> and I know that I can write a book in a month. I have written a book in 17 days. Wow. So my brain goes, we don't have to write this till it's 30 days. And I'm like, we really should start now. That would be much more beneficial to everybody involved. Brain says, nope, we can do it in 30 days. So typically at about a month. And I, I assume that's brief uh, for the industry. I think it's, you're, a, you're a fast worker. I'm a fast worker. There are people who are faster than me. There's people out there doing like indie books that are writing really quick turnarounds. Um, yeah. But for me, it's very exhausting. It's an exhausting process because I'm pretty much doing it from the time I get up till I go to bed. Like my husband and my kids, it's like, mom's going to write now. Like They'll see me sporadically, but you know, I'm pretty much just in this book cave writing this book. You're in the zone, like two yeah. books a year. So it's not hugely taking away from them. But you know, I do have author friends who are much faster who write, are putting out books like every few weeks, you know, like, but they're, they're much shorter books. My books are typically 80 to 90,000 words and theirs are like 50,000. So and I'm like 50,000, like they haven't even kissed in my book yet. I couldn't be done by then. So <laughs> I was, I was surprised about that actually, because it was about it was just over 300 pages. And, yeah. uh, and that, that did surprise me for the genre. I thought I would be reading something that would be, you know, a, yeah, a, I think there's a lot of stereotypes with the genre that, you know, that it's people have these things in their head. And the great thing is you can find whatever you're looking for. There's something for everyone, literally, even for men, if they want to go read it, you know, there's stuff that you're going to enjoy. Um, I had people tell me like with awestruck and the friend zone and stuff, those are football books you know, and guys are like, I actually really like the football in it. So, you know, something for everybody. Yeah. Would you ever, going back to some of what we talked about in the beginning, would you ever consider, consider writing more overtly Latter-day Saint fair, like in this genre, but directly appealing to Latter-day Saints? Well, I do this to make money. You know, if I wasn't making money, there are people who are like, even if I never sold a book, I would still write. If I never sold a book, I would never write again. Um, that there has to be, because of the kind of person I am and the personality I have, there has to be some payoff for me there. And 
I want to be successful. I, I'm very competitive with myself. I want to do well. And I keep pushing goals for myself so I can keep doing better and better. I mean, I would love to write LDS characters. I just don't know that a general audience would be cool with it. I think they would feel like, who are these people and why, you know, are they doing all this stuff? And to sell to the LDS market, I mean, the percentage of people who read LDS fiction is so small. It really, really is. And, you know, there are so many other authors who are already writing specifically for them. Like, you can find what you want. Go to Deseret and Siegel. They're there, you know. I like that I reach a wide audience and I, I want to keep doing that. Well, I suppose that's fair. I mean, I was hoping to get, you know, something like romance at fat cats or, you know, yeah. love at the cream, love at the creamery. I'm sure that's what's out there. Wilkinson center, you know? Yeah. I'm sure. Love, it, love at the Wilk. I see that actually would do those exist. see now this is a, this is a dark black hole for me, Sarai. If I find I out books exist that are, if there are romance novels about people falling in love at the Wilkinson center, I will wind up reading it and probably enjoying it. I bet you there are. I will ask. I will go ask my friends and say, are there any BYU set books? I bet you there are. And then I'll want to have those authors on the show. And it's just, it's, this is going to be dark. For me. I, uh, um, <laughs> this is going to take away my life. I'm going to abandon all the other, all the other, because these are dark days in our, in our country and everything sure. right now. And you know, why wouldn't I, I mean, like it's so much, so bit of a, of a digression. I was just like last week thinking like, I should just reread the Harry Potter series. I could yeah. use just some good, solid escapism right now that makes me happy because I'm way too worked up about everything else right yeah. now. Um, and you guys must be elated. This is this is more just church related. But now I know in, in Utah, it's been kind of weird with um, not being allowed to have like, div- you know, Zoom devotionals and things like that. I don't know why Utah's sort of banned it. And I know you've started in-person church as well, but I know the church just uh, today sort of encouraged people even in Utah to do virtual meetings if possible. Yeah. I, you know, I read the story, the brass serpent in the old Testament, and I never understood that story. Like for the life of me, I'm like, why don't you just look at the snake? Like, what is the problem? And now during this pandemic, I understand why it happened. You know, that people would have gone, don't look at the brass serpent. It's a hoax. I heard that if you look at it, you actually die faster Like I can see what would happen from living here, you know, that people are just not, I'm like the general authority presidency came out and said, wear a mask. And I had someone tell me, you know, they don't feel comfortable doing that. I'm like, but God said to do it. Like, shouldn't that be enough? Well, I mean, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't. I know, but you know, I mean, mean, who is, who's Craig C. Christensen? Who is this guy? Right. What's he doing telling me? And, and I I read this really great story on Facebook about that. This woman who was very anti-mask that, she was very upset that they had fasted and done all these things. And why do we still have this pandemic? And she said, as she was praying, the voice came back very clear and said, wear a mask. I've given you the means to stop this. You know, that we have the way we have the brass serpent and so many people out here, like, I cannot tell you going to the store, like most people did not wear a mask. Now that's not the case anymore because now the local stores, Smith's and Walmart have enforced it. It's Walmart, especially like they have a booth set up and you get checked and you know, but there's two people who don't. And I'm like, it's just that simple. Like if we would just all wear a mask, I, you know, it, it would be so much better. But I, my brother went back to church and had their first meeting. And the next day I got a call from the bishopric because one of the members had tested positive for coronavirus as I sat in that room, you know? So I think that's kind of what's going on is we just have stuff like that happening. And I actually got to go to church for the first time last week. And, you know, it was every other row and we all had to wear masks. And of course the guy in front of me had his mask down around his chin. I'm like, what? what are you doing? Like, I want to get up and hit him. But, 
<laughs> you know, it, it's even there. Like we had to come in through one set of doors and leave the other. And then the sacrament I thought was oh. fascinating. They put the sacrament in little plastic cups so that nobody was touching anything else. And the deacons were going into those empty rows and passing it to us. I was very impressed with the ingenuity of it all. Um, but I thought, yeah, I want to get back to it and we want to be doing this stuff. But I'm like, man, people having Zoom devotionals out here, like they would just see and do crazy stuff. I like, have you heard, I don't know if you've heard this, how much you come across this. Have you heard the Heartland theory of the Book of Mormon? Uh, Team Heartland? You mean that the Book of Mormon took place in the Great Lakes region? Like, if you think this is true, then I cannot be friends. Just so you know that. Soraya, how could the the Great Lakes theory not be true? Come on. Like, they have a general authority in the church office building whose whole job is to deal with these people. That's awesome. That like, part of it. And I am such a huge, like I wrote Book of Mormon fiction. I, I belong to like, the Book of Mormon archaeological Facebook group. Like I am fascinated with the culture because so much of the culture influences the spirituality of the book. Like the Book of Mormon becomes so much more powerful and so much more spiritual when you understand the culture that it's talking about. And it's like the example I give is um, the anti-Nephi Lehi's that, you know, the swords are made out of wood and volcanic glass. And there's a promise the Lord makes them that he'll make their swords bright. And so I'll do a demonstration in front of a class. I'll take up my silver dagger and I pour some red food dye on it. And I said, how hard is it for me to clean this sword? It's not. I wipe the blood off. It comes right off. When I put it into a piece of wood, what happens? The stain will never come out. So the Lord is promising something that is so powerful and so amazing. And if you don't understand the basis of what he's promising, you're missing it. It's so much more powerful. And I feel like it's almost kind of disrespectful to the Lord and what he's saying, you know, but I thought so many people out here believe it. My, I'm going to gossip. I won't say that. But people around me believe it. People in positions of authority in my ward believe it. And it's very hard for me. So, so, so are, and especially given your, your background, so are you just a believer in Mesoamerican Book of Mormon? Very much so. It's what every LDS scholar believes. It's what the general authorities say. Joseph Smith said Palenque was a Nephite city, and Palenque is the only city where we have found um, a stela that has an inscription, a hieroglyphic inscription that says, and it came to pass. You know, um, it's so obvious to me. Like, it, it, if, you, if you construct your own map of the Book of Mormon, like, in Ohio, the Book of Mormon, the river runs the wrong way. Mississippi runs the wrong way. It's the wrong direction. And, you know, they, like the Heartlanders thought that they think Sarah Hemla is in Iowa. So they spent $500,000 to buy the land and dig it up. And they used one of those big, like, bulldozers to dig it up, which, if you know anything about archaeological digs, like how painful that is. <laughs> and uh, at one point, one of the leaders had a pair of divining rods to look for things. And they found nothing. I'm like, you'd think they'd at least find something, like some arrowheads or shards from natives who live there. Zero, nothing, half a million dollars. So, I mean, I mean, in their defense, the city across the Mississippi River from Nauvoo was Zarahemla, Iowa, but that was a different Zarahemla. But, right. They were going to name it Zarahemla, but Heartlanders believe the Lord is saying that's Zarahemla. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got you. So, so they went digging and they found nothing. I'm so shocked. But yeah, so I just this even, is the whole. This is a whole extra riveting discussion I would love to have with you. I, I would have it with you any day of the week. Like I, this is like, I don't, I, have so I, I don't have passionate views per se about I do. one or uh, you're kidding. No way. Um, yeah. uh, about one or the other, but I've found compelling arguments on both sides, but you, you're well, clearly well more. Yeah. Studied if you have compelling in. arguments for Heartland side, I will disabuse you of your notions as quickly as I possibly can. There well, is nothing one, compelling or correct. 
Um, well, American exceptionalism. Certainly. Yes. That's the first yes. one, of course. You know, or like people say, oh, well, the hill Camorra is in New York. And I'm like, here's the problem. Neither Joseph Smith nor Moroni ever called that Camorra. Not once. That's something saints did. They said that's the hill Camorra. That's where the scriptures are found. You know, and they use that as proof that that's the Camorra where the final battle took place. And I'm like, no, you don't understand the scriptures and you don't understand what's going on. But yeah, I'm actually a pretty easygoing person. And there are hills that I will die on. And this is a hill I will die on. <laughs> like unto shiz. Yes. That's very good. <laughs> oh, that's, that's a crack up. Well, honestly, I mean, you're, you're great at all the writing, but I think we just need to have you on as one of our regular panelists to cover LDS news on regular shows. So if you know, if you, when you've I'm got down. random extra, extra time, I think you would be a fun, <laughs> a fun person to join in the mix uh, to do all of this. Um, well, I think we're running, we're running out of time, oh, unfortunately, yeah. because now I really, no, no, don't, well, don't be sorry. We can sit here for another hour if you want to, I'm fine with it. But, um, I think you've you've had a very interesting career, and I think you've learned a lot about I yourself yeah. and about audiences and all these things. And, and like you said, comparatively brief at this stage, but you've had a, a lot of success in, in doing it, which is great. And I think that's awesome that you've been able to uh, to follow through with something that both that you've been interested in, but also that the spirit, as you said, has confirmed to you to be something you should do. And I, I think there are plenty of people, I'd say myself included, who have jobs. And as far as me, like spiritual confirmation for what I do, it's more of just sort of the obvious side of it. Like I often feel revelation that way. Like this makes sense to me and I feel good about it and it's fine. But I've never had a whisper tell me, tell me, yes, Jeff, you should be a government contractor in Washington, D.C. Because that is what I, which is honestly the saddest line of work in the world, but here I am. Um, So I think it's awesome. I think that's so great. And I think it's amazing that you've had experiences that have benefited your family. Like you talked about your son and thanks for sharing that with us. And, uh, and that's cool. And right now roommate is in the top 10 on the yeah. Kindle list, which yeah. is awesome. Um, at least at this time of recording, uh, but it's available. All of you folks can go and get it. We of course will link to it at this week in Mormons.com. We'll have a link right there to Amazon, gobble it up, have yourself a good read and, uh, you know, it'll make you happy. What will happen with Madison? And like you said, what will happen with Madison and Tyler? We might know in general, but it's going to be fun to figure out how on earth it happens. That's, that's the right. puzzle. Yeah. And boy, those, and I know you said you, you weren't writing to specific, you know, themes or symbolism, but I did find that Roommate had, it touched on some interesting issues, at least in a way, in terms of the characters and what they go through and trying to stand for yourself and sort of not let your, not let your past or your background or anything define you. Yeah. Uh, and I think that was, that's a good message uh, for any of us. I think it would resonate with a lot of Latter-day Saints because we're so into, you know, self-reliance and provident living and all yeah. those fun things that we talk about whenever you get saddled with one of the worst callings in the church, which is the <laughs> provident living specialist. And, <laughs> so, so good times there. Uh, I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you, Sarai. Thank you very much for taking the time to be with us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was great. Absolute pleasure. So everybody, please look up Roommate. Once again, we'll link to it. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be keeping tabs on what you come out with next year because I want to read that book next year all about the seat, seat filler. Yeah, I think the seat filler might be worth revisiting. You said next April for next that April. Yeah, next April. Okay, April twenty twenty one, and by then hopefully we'll all not be wearing masks just because it's like okay not to. Yes, you know, that, that would be great. Awesome. Well, Sir Wilson, thank you again. Been a pleasure. All right, thanks. And to all of you, our dear listeners, thank you very much for spending this time with us. We hope it was worthwhile for you. Next week pre-conference jitters who knows what will happen conference predictions which we really don't know like what do we predict at this point who could have predicted 2020 i 
I got nothing. Maybe they'll bring back the High Priest group. That sounds fun. Anyway, thanks for tuning in, folks. We'll talk to you next week on This Week in Mormons. Until then, be well, be whole, and be happy.